0: We're up to mitzvah number 93, and today we're going to do four mitzvahs, 93, 94, 425, and 528. And these are four mitzvahs regarding our Canaanite policy, the policy regarding war with the Canaanite nations. Of course, the Jewish people, they were in Egypt, they leave Egypt, they go to Sinai, they spend 40 years in the wilderness. And over the course of those 40 years, they're told what they need to do once they cross over the Jordan and they enter the land and they encounter the very hostile Canaanite nations that are residing, inhabiting the land. And Mitzvah number 93 tells us not to make a treaty with the seven Canaanite nations. Mitzvah number 94 tells us to not allow idolaters to reside in the land. And then 425 tells us the nature of the Canaanite war. It's got to be total war. Take no prisoners. And that's the positive mitzvah. And then 528 is the negative version of that, the prohibition to refrain from total war against the Canaanites. Now, there are other mitzvahs regarding general war conduct. The Torah outlines the nature of war, how we must engage in typical wars. But this is specifically referring to the wars of the Canaanite nations. And there are, of course, other mitzvahs related to other nations, namely the Amalek nation, Amalekite nations. But these mitzvahs refer to the seven Canaanite nations, which inhabited the land when the nation ascended from Egypt and were told not to make a treaty with them, to not allow them to reside in the land, provided that they're, or so long as they are idolatrous, and then the nature of the war, it's got to be a total war. And if we don't do that, we are also violating a mitzvah not to refrain from total war against the Canadian nations. And of course, this is a very difficult set of mitzvos for modern sensibility. You know, today, of course, there's an effort on humane conduct of war. We're worried about the use of disproportionate use of force and it's really hard for us to rationalize with these mitzvahs that we're told to engage in total combat against these enemy nations. I think just to get started, you know, one way to rationalize it, and this is what the Torah itself says. The Torah itself tells us that these people were monstrous barbarians. For example, the Torah mentions they would engage in child sacrifice to Moloch; They would take their kids and put them in the fire and kill them for the for the idol. And our sages even tell us that the way they used to do it, they would have the music playing in the background so that the parents would not be forced to listen to the shrieks and cries of their children being burned alive. These people were total barbarians. And we're told we have to stamp these people out. We have to get rid of them from the land. We have to banish them from the land. But nevertheless, you know, by modern standards... The Jews are told to not abide by the Geneva Convention. So this is something we're going to have to wrestle with to understand exactly what the meaning behind this mitzvah is, how to understand it, and if there's a way to rationalize it to modern sensibilities. So let's first try to go through the mitzvah itself or the mitzvot themselves to try to understand what they are telling us and then try to go through the various different ways to understand the rationale so, mitzvah number ninety-three tells us to not make a pact, to not make a treaty with these seven nations. And this extends—we're told in the Sefer HaChinuch, the book that is guiding us through the mitzvot—this extends to other idolatrous nations. We should not commit to friendly relations with evil nations. If there are evil nations, and the example of that is the seven Canaanite nations. We should not make a pact with them, a treaty, an alliance. We don't engage in friendly relations with idolatrous nations. These seven nations were told multiple times in the Torah: the Chivi, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the, uh, the the Chivi and the Chiti, the Yavusi, Jebusites, and Girgashites. Seven nations that inhabited the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, before we arrived in the land. Now, it's interesting, the Sefer Chana points out that the verse tells us that we should not make a pact with them and their gods. Lo tegros lahem ule and their gods, bris, a covenant. So, the commentaries tell us, the Ramban, amongst others, including the Sefer Chinoch, that our problem is not with these people per se, but it was with or is with these people who are idolaters, meaning in the event that they abandon their deities, in the event they become monotheists, they become believers, then this myth will not be applicable. We cannot make peace with them and allow them to engage in idolatry. We cannot make a covenant with them and their gods. But it's implied from this that if they abandon their gods, we can, in fact, make a peace treaty with them. Now, why do we have this mitzvah? So the Sever of of course, always gives us a reason behind every mitzvah. And he tells us that the root of this mitzvah is to banish idolatry from the world. We have to get rid of idolatry and all of the people who engage in idolatry. And then he says that the root of idolatry, the source of idolatry, the source of a worldview that tries to obviate the need for God, the root is found in these seven Canaanite nations. You know, it's interesting. We know that the land of Israel, land of Canaan, the holy land, the chosen land, the land that Abraham was told, leave your homeland and go there, that is the place most suitable for a connection with the Almighty. And we have a principle all across our philosophy that specifically at the point where is the most potential for holiness, there has to also be the counterweight, the most potential for impurity. And therefore, if the connection with the Almighty is strongest in the land of Israel, it would make sense that the opposite extreme would also be feasible in that land. And he tells us that the root of idolatry, the first nations to adopt the anti-God philosophy, and worldview were these seven Canaanite nations in the very same place where a connection to the Almighty, of course, is most propitious. And therefore, we're told that the they have to be destroyed, they have to be moved from the land, and that's why they were uprooted from their land, and we have to pursue them and uproot their noxious influence from the world. And then the Sefer adds, and this is similar to what we said earlier, that a corollary or component of this mitzvah is that we should try to withhold from making a pact with any idolatrous nation and try to uproot idolatry in general from the world. So we have a mitzvah that is talking about how we have to relate to these seven nations, but... Extended from that, of course, is how we have to relate to other idolatrous nations. But there are some differences between the original seven and the rest of the idolatrous nations. So he tells us, the other nations, so if there's other nations that are idolatrous nations, we don't have to pursue them. There's no mitzvah for us to go chase them down and pursue them. They're not in our land. We don't have to worry about them. If they attack us, of course, we have to fight back. We don't believe in passivity when attacked. That's with other idolatrous nations. Whereas these seven nations, this is the Sefer Chenech's understanding of this mitzvah, we are commanded to pursue them even if they're not attacking us and even if they're not in the land of Israel. This is the root of idolatry in the world. This is the root of evil in the world and we have to uproot them from the world. Then he tells us, this was really a surprise for me. He says, even today, Suppose you're able to discover remnants of these original seven nations. I don't know how you would do that. It's hard to trace someone's genealogy back to their original Jebusite. Really hard to find that today. These nations kind of, they got lost or they got dispersed. But suppose, just theoretically he tells us, that you were able to identify a member of this idolatrous nation. And they're still practicing idolatry today and you're able to kill them without any danger to yourself, it would be a mitzvah for you to kill them. Meaning that this mitzvah is an active mitzvah. It's not like a one-time mitzvah that happened you know, thousands of years ago. We are still commanded to root out these nations and these idolatrous nations. We have a general principle of live and let live with other nations, with other idolatrous nations, provided they don't bother us, we don't bother them. With respect to these, we have to, Get rid of him. That is the opinion of the Sefer HaChinoch. Now, it's important to interject and say that that opinion is actually disputed. For example, the Rambam, he disagrees and he rules that even these seven nations, we must wage war with them only if they attack us. Meaning if they leave the land or if there's no ongoing conflict, this mitzvah would be suspended. So there's a dispute. According to some opinions, they say this business is still active today. Again, very theoretical. But if, theoretically, you knew that there was a force of these seven, seven candidate nations, you would still be mandated by the law of the Torah to go pursue them and uproot them. That's one opinion. And the Raman would disagree and he would say that you should withhold from this unless they are attacking us. Now, it's interesting in the continuation of this comment – of the Sefer Chinuch, there is a censored piece. You can tell, obviously, this is a very controversial mitzvah, and it's uh, one that's likely to uh, not arouse favor in the eyes of the, of the nations. So there's a line in the Sefer Chinuch that was censored for obvious reasons. I'm going to read to you the censored version, or the I guess the uncensored version. This that we say that when idolatrous nations pursue us and attack us, we fight back. But when they are withholding from attacking us, we don't attack them. That is specifically with idolaters from the nations. So when, no one, when you don't attack us, we don't attack you, live and let live. That's with idolaters from the other nations. But if there is a Jewish person, Who is engaging in idolatry? For example, the heretics, the apostates, the api which is another word for heretic. Then we must pursue them. Why? Because they cause damage and destruction to the Jewish people. And it's better to destroy a thousand of them and not allow one kosher Israelite to be tainted and corrupted. So this is telling us, again, this is like an interjection to the point that, we have the the seven Canaanite nations, and we have all the other idolatrous nations, and we have idolaters amongst our people, and he's telling us that with respect to idolaters of our people, we must pursue them and uproot them and get rid of them from this world. Now, what if these idolatrous nations, these seven Canaanite nations, what if they repent? Part of this mitzvah, the Sefer Chedot tells us that in the event that they repent, they repudiate idolatry, then we can, in fact, have friendly relations with them and we can strike a treaty with them. Now, there's a dispute as to whether or not they have to actually accept the seven Noahide laws. Maybe it's insufficient for them to just reject idolatry and just stop there. According to the Rambam, for example, they have to, not only they must reject idolatry but they must also adopt the seven noahide laws and of course they have to be upstanding citizens pay their fair share of taxes etc but there is a carve out there is a way for them to get out of this distinction in the event that they become they call noahides they become righteous gentiles and they want to be productive members of society they in fact can be allowed to stay in the land and they can become what's called a toshav, a resident convert and they, we can allow them to be perpetuated in the land. So that's missing number 93, the prohibition against striking a treaty with these seven Canaan nations unless they repudiate idolatry and adopt the way of the Noahide. With respect to the seven Canaan nations, and of course with respect to the other idolatrous nations, and there may be differences between those two. Mitzvah number 425, of course, is a related mitzvah, and that is the nature of the war with these seven Canaanite nations. The Jewish people, they leave Egypt, they spend 40 years in the wilderness, Moshe passes, Joshua takes over the nation, and then very quickly they cross over the Jordan into a very hostile and dangerous territory. There are seven different nations and 31 different kings who are ruling the land, and they're all very hostile to the Jews, and that begins a war of conquest, the war against the Canaanite nations. Of course, the first city is the city of Jericho, and the Jewish people surround the city, and they encircle the city, and they blow the shofar. We know the story, the book of Joshua, and the walls of Jericho collapse. It's obvious and evident to all that this is not a normal war, the way we would engage in war this is a miraculous war. This is a war where God is fighting on our behalf. It's important to keep that in our mind when we process this mitzvah. So mitzvah number 425, to wage in total war against the Canaanites. And the reason for this is that, again, like you mentioned earlier, these nations were the founders of idolatry. And all the abomination that God hates They're the ones who established those practices in the world. And therefore, because they are the root of idolatry, they are the foundation of idolatry, we were commanded, says the Sefer Hinach, to erase their name from the world, to destroy their remnant, to get rid of them, to banish them from underneath the heavens. And no one should remember them. And no one should count them amongst the family of nations. And this is not just about getting rid of evil from the world, there's also a benefit to us in that we will not learn from their ways. When you have bad influences, that influences you as well. You cannot isolate and insulate yourself and say, I'm not going to be influenced by my neighbors. You will. If your neighbors are evil and murderous idolaters, you may in fact want to emulate them. Now you don't have these forces around You'll be spared from their influence. Moreover, it will teach you a lesson, says the Sefer Ha'anuch, if you see that this is, you know, you're required to pursue them and engage in war with them, and they must be your enemies, unless they repent and repudiate idolatry. Well, then no one in their right mind would say, you know what, I want to be like my enemies. If you're required to engage in war with them, you are not likely to want to copy them. And then he proceeds to ask a very interesting question. You know, Sefer Chinoch, it doesn't always follow the same script, even though it has the same basic outline for every mitzvah. He sometimes asks these interesting side questions, and this one I found to be very interesting. He says, I don't get it. We have this nation, or these series of nations, Canaanite nations, so evil, they're bringing idolatry in the world, child sacrifice, terrible people. Why do they exist? What's the purpose of these nations? Why did the Almighty create these nations? He creates these nations and they're so evil and so corrupt. and They're so terrible. And then he tells us, get rid of these nations, banish these nations. Don't create these nations to begin with. That's his question. And he gives a few answers. First answer he tells us is that God didn't make these nations evil. They had free will. And they made poor choices. And those poor choices led them to becoming evil, and then it got progressively worse. And eventually, they became so intolerable that they have told us, we have to destroy these people from the nation. But they had the capacity, we destroy the people from the world, that is. They had the capacity to be righteous. They could have been good. They could have been moral and upstanding and righteous, but they made their choices They cast their lot with Molech, and now they're enemies of God, and they must be destroyed. Another idea, he says, is that maybe they were righteous at one point. They were righteous, and then became not righteous, they became evil. A third answer he offers is that maybe there was one person who was meritorious and earned life and vitality For the entire nation, because of them. This is an astonishing idea. We have corrupt nations, seven nations, terrible, evil nations. But it's possible there was one righteous person, one righteous citizen of this nation. And that one righteous citizen would provide life for the whole nation. And he gives a precedent for this idea. He says Amalek. Amalek is like the worst. That's our arch foe. Our nation's arch enemy is the nation of Amalek. But they had a righteous descendant. And maybe the reason why the entire nation was given life and vitality and continuity was in order to spawn this one righteous descendant. Who's that? That's Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, the Roman emperor who was very friendly with the Jews and provided cover for the enormous project of the writing of the Mishnah. So maybe these Canaanite nations also had some redeeming individual and that person was the merit why God gave life to this whole nation, which is an astonishing idea. But this is the mitzvah, mitzvah number 425, that we must engage in war with these nations. And we'll talk more about how that actually worked out in the next mitzvah. What are the laws of this mitzvah? So he tells us that there are two kinds of war in Jewish law. There's what's known as a mitzvah war, which is an obligatory war. And then there is an optional war. There are some wars that we must engage with, and there are other wars that we can choose. It's up to the discretion maybe of the court or of the king or of the leadership council to determine whether or not to engage in the optional war. What are the obligatory wars? He gives us three examples. These are three wars that are a mitzvah. The king does not even need to ask the Sanhedrin he can unilaterally engage in this war, and they are the war against the seven Canaanite nations, the war against Amalek, and any war where the Jewish people are attacked, or attacked, that triggers a mitzvah war to defend our people. In these three instances, the king, the leader, would not need to go request, you know, like they they did today, a declaration of war from Congress, none of that. You don't need that. You don't need to go to the Sanhedrin. You can go and engage in war right away, draft, conscript soldiers, and go take on the enemy. So that's Mitzvah number 425, the Mitzvah to engage in total war against the Canaanite nations. Again, the Sefer Chilich is of the opinion that this Mitzvah is still ongoing today. In the event that you find these, Canaanite nations, and they are idolaters, you would theoretically still be obligated to engage in war with them. And Mitzah number 528 is the negative version of this, and that is to not withhold or to not refrain from engaging in total war with these nations. Now, how exactly were these wars conducted? So the Midrash tells us, this is in, this is in Vayikra Rabba, uh section number 17, chapter 17, It describes what Joshua would do when encountering these seven nations. He would send them a declaration of war. He would send them a letter. And the letter would have like an ultimatum. It would have options. And it would say, option number one, if you want to leave, if you want to vacate our land, you can do so. No problem. Option number two, you want to make peace with us? Accepting our terms? you could do that as well. Option number three, if you want to engage in war, that too is a legitimate option. Three options. You could leave, you could stay and accept our peace terms, or you could try to fight us and then let us have war. And it tells us that there were various options selected. So we talked about the seven Canaanite nations. One of them, Actually accepted the first term and said, we will leave. We know that this land is apportioned by God for the Jewish people. And now, you know, they spent a couple of hundred years in Egypt, but now they are coming to make a legitimate claim on their ancestral land given to them by God. We are packing up and we are leaving. And that is the Girgashite nation. So we had, we had seven nations. One of them, the Girgashi, they accepted the first option of Joshua and said, we are leaving. And the Midrash tells us that as a reward for their decision to leave, they were given a land that is almost identical to the land of Israel. That's an amazing land that they were given. Which land is that? It seems like that is the land of Morocco. Morocco. Morocco in Northern Africa, it's a gorgeous land. It has many of the amenities of the land of Israel, says the Midrash they were given to they were given a land as a reward for voluntarily vacating their their land in the land of Canaan they were given a land that is comparable and that is the land of Morocco and even today the kingdom of Morocco has been very friendly to the Jews it's the one kind of Arab Muslim nation that has and that currently but also in in previous years when it wasn't so Politically expedient to do so, they maintained very friendly relations with the Jews. And there is this, again, ancient tradition that the people of Morocco, they're actually the Girgashites who accepted option number one from Joshua. They left and they were amply rewarded for that. And then you have the Gibbonites, even though there was some deception on their part nevertheless the Gibbonites tried to make peace and they were allowed to stay under peaceful terms with Joshua and the Jews and then you had the thirty-one kings who remained, they made war with the Jews and they suffered the consequences they were destroyed. So thats the number. 425, 528. How we have to engage in war with these nations. We do give them the option to stay. You can stay if you want. You can be a productive member of the new administration, provided that you accept our terms, namely to reject idolatry, or to accept, at least according to the Rambam, to accept the seven Noahide laws and to be, you know, a functioning member, a functioning citizen. You got to pay taxes, etc. If you want to engage in war, there is conduct for war, and the war is a total war to, try to root out these noxious elements. And finally, we have mitzvah number 94, and this is, again, very similar to these preceding mitzvos, and that is to not allow idolaters to dwell in the land. So this is not addressing specifically the seven Canaanite nations. It's referring to all idolaters in the land of Israel. They have no place. This is the land of God. And this is a land that's intolerable, doesn't allow idolaters to dwell in it. They are not allowed to settle the land. And of course, the reason for this is straightforward. The verse, in fact, itself tells us that the Jewish people, you know, we're here as God's emissaries. And we can flourish best in the land of Israel more than any other land. And again, we say the land of Israel, we're talking about the land of Canaan, the holy land, that chose the chosen land, the same piece of real estate operating under different names. The verse says that if we allow idolaters to dwell in the land, they will cause us to learn from their heresy. And therefore, we cannot allow that. That's intolerable. Live elsewhere, not here. I think the reason why this mitzvah is so difficult for us to swallow and to stomach is because, you know, we, for better or worse, I guess, we have been living in western democracies and that's kind of shaded our shaded our understanding of nationhood and citizenship and allowing people to believe whatever they want to believe it's interesting that the only place in the world where arabs and muslims get to vote it's only in western style democracies in the middle east it's only land of israel it's interesting you know israel's uh, is israel is is criticized as um as an apartheid state when the only place in the Middle East where the Arabs can determine their future is only in the land of Israel. Even today, you know, part of the governing coalition, well, it's, there's Arab parties there for the first time. Arab Islamic parties, they have a say. They have a seat at the table. Is that a good thing or not? So, of course, we, we were raised in Western-style democracies. I would imagine most of us. So for us, we celebrate that. The Torah doesn't believe in that. You know, even Winston Churchill used to say, well, democracy is the worst kind of government. It's just better than every every other kind. Uh, the Torah doesn't believe in that. The Torah doesn't believe that every opinion is equally legitimate and every way of life is legitimate. The Torah doesn't believe in that. And in the land of Israel, we're, we're told that we have to run this land by the rules of the Torah. And that means that if there is idolatry, it must be stamped out. So if it's part of these seven original nations, we have to destroy them. Other nations, they can't live here. You cannot live if you're an idolater. That's the rules. That's the rules of the land of Israel. That's the rules of the Torah. But we are acknowledging that this is something that's really hard for us to process and to accept because our way of life, or certainly our understanding of, of, of government and, and politics and, and nationhood, it, this philosophy violates that idea. So, Mitzah number 94 is we cannot allow idolaters to dwell in the land. There is an exception, And that is what's known as a resident convert, which is what's called a ger tosha. The word ger means a convert. Someone who is not Jewish, becomes Jewish, is known as a ger. But there are two levels a here, two types of ger. There's a ger tzadek, which means a righteous convert. And there's a ger tosha, which means a resident convert. A resident convert is someone who doesn't become Jewish themselves, but they are accepting of the laws of the Torah as related to Gentiles. And therefore, because of that, they're a convert who's a resident, they're allowed to be a resident in the land of Israel when it's operating by Torah laws because they are willing to adhere to the rules of this land. So we have two kinds of ger. We have the ger tzedek who accepts all 613 mitzvot and then we have the ger toshav as someone who has repudiated idolatry but not accepted the 613. And interestingly, the, the law tells us that to be a garitoshav, to be a resident convert, you would still need to go to court to reject, to reject idolatry, to repudiate idolatry, but you wouldn't need to go to the mitzvah. You wouldn't need to accept all 613 mitzvahs. Now, the practical aspect of this law, mitzvah number 94, is most prominent with respect to sale of property if you're living in the land of israel and you want to sell your land you want to sell your field your orchard your house according to this law you would not be allowed to sell to an idolater because you cannot allow idolaters to take root in the land of israel you would be allowed to rent it potentially Maybe the laws of fields and orchards are more strict because the idolaters are not going to give tithing and therefore it's even stricter and there's all kinds of different gradients of this law. So with a field, you can't even rent it. With a house, you can rent it. But even with a house, you can't rent it if they're going to live there, but they can use it as a store or a shop. But the principal idea of this minister is not to allow idolaters to take root in land. That's not what this land is intended for. It's a tiny little drop of all the land in the world. You know, the Russian Empire from like 1615, you know, Catherine the Great, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great. It grew over the course of hundreds of years. It grew an average of 50 square miles every single day. It's vast. It's enormous. There's lots of land. at the land of Israel. In the land of Israel, there are certain rules. One of the rules by the Torah standards is idolaters are not welcome. They're not welcome, not as nations, not as individuals. They can if they want, provided you follow the rules. You follow the rules and you can live there. The rules are you reject idolatry, you repudiate idolatry, and you live by the seven Noahide laws. I find it interesting that, you know, Israel gets criticized as an apartheid state and this myth, so I would imagine people who are, you know, used to the, Western democracy, they would have a hard time with it. Somehow, no one has any problem when the, when the Muslim countries do the same thing. You know, if you're a non Muslim, you can't even walk into Mecca and Medina. You're not allowed to. And they don't exactly tolerate deviations. They don't tolerate that at all. But somehow, um, Israel has chosen to live by the principles of Western democracies, and therefore these ideas obviously are not, um, Implemented currently in the state of Israel, but uh, they seem very foreign as well. I want to go through some of the ways that we can try to understand these mitzvos today. You know, again, today we're acknowledging that our sensibilities are are violated by these mitzvos. Total war, war is so foreign to us. The idea of not allowing idolatry to take root. Can't we just be more understanding? I want to suggest a few different ways to understand this mitzvah. So first of all, I want to note that if you look at the mistakes that our nation has done over the course of our history, repeatedly we have been criticized for not doing these kinds of mitzvos well. The Jews repeatedly struggle with violence. Violence is not something that we do well. The Talmud tells us that the marks, the hallmarks of the Jews is that we are bashful, we are merciful, and we are kind. These are the three hallmarks of the Jewish people. And then we have nations that display cruelty, and we're told because you're cruel, you can't join the Jewish people. Cruelty is not a natural characteristic of our people. We're very merciful and therefore violence by definition goes against our nature and we see many times in our history that the Jewish people have made a mistake have erred have violated the will of God by insufficient violence so for example, even in the Torah, the war against Midian, Moshe lambasts the nation when the females of the enemy who were the ones who promoted the war when they were spared. Again, the nation is criticized for insufficient violence. Saul. Saul was the first king of the Jews. A titan of a man. One of the great heroes of our history. And he was deposed. He was forced to abdicate the throne. Why? Because of insufficient violence the prophet told him, you have to destroy Amalek. And he didn't do a complete job. He left the king alive, he left the animals alive. He did most of the job, 99.9% of the job. But because of insufficiently doing the job, he was fired and David was coronated. You look at the book of Joshua and primarily the book of Judges, we see that there is tremendous suffering that happens to the Jewish people Thanks to the fallout of the blunder of not engaging against the Canaanites the way the Torah describes us. I would say even today, you know, after the six day war, there was an opportunity that really has not surfaced since. And that is to actually make the Jewish state the Jewish state. Why? Because 100,000 Arabs fled the land. They fled the land. They went to Jordan. And that's it. After the war, they appointed guards along the Jordan River and didn't allow the Arab refugees to come back to their house. And then Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, said, no, that's not humane. So he opened the doors. Arabs poured back in. And now we have, again, we've had you know, what, 50 years of conflict with the Arabs in the land of Israel and how much terrorism. And of course, not every Arab in the land or Palestinian is a, is a terrorist, but there's been a lot of friction. Why? Because we didn't mop up properly. There was insufficient violence and cruelty. It's against our nature. We're naturally a peaceful, merciful people. Any sort of violence really is against our nature. And that's why this is such a hard mitzvah. And that's why it's been... Again, these kinds of mitzvahs have not been our strong suit over the course of our history. I think that's a good understand, or a good beginning to understand this whole subject. But to maybe take it to the next level, how do we understand the nature of these conflicts? God tells us when you do war, do a complete war. Don't leave anyone alive. I think a way to understand this, you know, how many people died in the aforementioned war against Midian? Midian was one of the superpowers. Midian was not in the land of Canaan. It was on the other side of the Jordan. But it was a superpower. How many Jews died in the war against Midian? So we don't need to speculate. The verse in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, tells us there was not even one casualty. Not one dead not one injured. What does that tell us about the nature of this kind of war? It tells us it's not an ordinary conflict. It's an amazing, miraculous, and clearly a different kind of battle. After that war, the leaders of the battalions, they came and made a donation of a lot of gold to the coffers of the tabernacle to thank God that nobody was killed. Even in the most lopsided war, you don't have zero casualties on the part of the victor. Such a rout happened only because this was a miraculous war that was really waged by God. In fact, the verse says so explicitly. The verse says that, you know, just like the wars against Egypt and against Amalek, Moshe putting up his hands on top of the mountain and the wars against Midian and Sichon and Og, The wars against the Canaanites were also miraculous. They were, in effect, waged by God. You think about it. You surround the city of Jericho, blow the shofar, and the walls are swallowed up in the ground. Is this a normal war? Is this an ordinary war? The Canaanites, the verse describes that the the hornets are going to spit venom from the other side of the Jordan. It's going to blind the Canaanites. Obviously, we're talking about a war that's engaged by God. And therefore, it's important for us to understand what role we are playing in this war. We're like pretending to fight the war, but really it's a war that God is engaging in. An important idea. If we want to understand the nature of this mitzvah, we have to acknowledge that this war or these wars were really. Done by God. We were just the implementers, but really it was a miraculous war done by God. So the question is not, you know, how do Jews do it? The question is, why would God do it? That's a very different level of a question. Why would God destroy a city? It's a hard question for us to answer because we don't know. But the same question that we would ask on the city of Jericho, we have to ask on the city of Pompeii when it was destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the year 79? That's the same question. Why did God make a volcano explode and destroy the whole city of Pompeii? I don't know. He must have had a good reason. Why would God destroy the city of Jericho? I don't know. He must have had a good reason. But it's a very different kind of question than to ask, why did we destroy the city? This was not a decision done by humans arbitrarily, with our own discretion, done by humans. And again, I want to point out, if you want to talk about the wars against the Canaanites, if you're accepting that it even happened, you are, by definition, accepting the word of Scripture. Because nowhere else are these wars even documented. So if you're accepting that these wars even happened, you're accepting the word of Scripture. And therefore, when Scripture tells us that these wars were commanded by God, and God, in fact, implemented these wars, and these were miraculous wars, and look at, just read the book of Joshua, look how many miracles happened. It's a miraculous war. It's a very different perspective, very different framing on these mitzvahs and these wars. It wasn't like it was our decision to destroy these cities and these peoples. It was God's. And again, to ask why God did stuff, that's a harder question. You know, why do pandemics happen? Why were the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah uprooted and destroyed? I don't know. It's a question you have to ask God. But I think that perspective, I think, does make this whole idea a little bit more palatable for our sensibilities. You know, if there's a tsunami that destroys Sri Lanka, we don't know why it happened. We have no idea. If that is the same kind of destruction that happened to the Canaanite cities, done by God for reasons that he knows, well, then I think it's much easier for us to process it. But finally, one more idea. The Torah does not believe in showing mercy to evil. These people were evil. They were the founders of the idolatrous way of life that was profoundly evil by any standard, even by secular, non-religious standards. And Again, like I mentioned, this is the Torah mentions. It was common practice for them to engage in child sacrifice. We don't believe in leniency towards evil. The Midrash tells us something very stunning. If you are merciful on the cruel, in the end, you will become cruel on the merciful. We believe that when there's evil, we have to engage in judgment and eradication of that evil. We don't believe in misplaced mercy and leniency. And therefore, when evil is stamped out, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to get rid of the terrorists. It's a good thing to get rid of the criminals. This is something to celebrate. Why? Because we're making the world a more perfect world. And again, our hearts bleed. Oh, we feel bad, and, you know, okay. So that's the root of our mercy. And like we mentioned earlier, it's hard for us. Like we struggled historically with these kinds of mitzvot. We didn't do well at them. We're better at money. we're better at kindness and charity. You measure us by that. We're really good at that. This is something that we struggle with. But when these forces are eradicated, the purpose of creation can be fulfilled. It's important for us to remember, our nation was placed here, or via our choices and our antecedents and our history and our Torah, we have the weight of humanity on our shoulders. We're here to fulfill a very critical and sacred mission. We're here to bring God into the world and get rid of evil. And therefore, we are not like any other nation. And the land of Israel is not like any other land. And that, I think, also helps round out our discussion of these mitzvos. Is it easy for us to understand? Is it palatable for us? It's not. We acknowledge that this is a controversial mitzvah. I told you this from the very beginning. It's controversial. And... It's something that we would, we would feel like an urge to try to, to, try to shade or to try to, to, try to amend it. Well, no, this is, this is the Torah. We, we don't change the Torah. This is what the Almighty wants. It's important for us to try to say, how can we make sense of this? But we don't change the Torah. That part is sacrosanct. This is the Torah and the Almighty wants us to get rid of these people, banish them from the land, uproot their not just influence on the world. And yes, if they want to make peace, they could stay, but we don't make a treaty with them. We don't make a pact with them. We don't allow them to take root in the land. And if they want war, if that's the option they choose, we engage in total, complete and utter war. That's the kind of war. Of course, we're acknowledging that it's really done by God and, but he wants us to do that. He wants us to do that as difficult as this is. This is not an easy mitzvah. This is a hard mitzvah. It's one that goes against our nature. But that's the mitzvah, We mitzvah number 93, 94, 425, and 528. The mitzvahs of how we must engage with the idolatrous, murderous, barbarous Canaanite nations. As always, my email address is rabbiwobijim.com. Send me your comments. I'm looking forward to the comments on this particular mitzvah. But I enjoy doing this. I kind of pushed pushed it off. I said, ah, let's wait a few more weeks before we do the next mitzvah because it's going to be so controversial. Everyone's going to send me their hate mail. That's fine. The address for the hate mail, rabbiwobay at gmail.com.